Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 39, Ghosts in the Mist. So when we ended off last time, we had finished discussing the opening phase of the Battle of Jutland. Admiral Franz Hipper had successfully lured David Beatty into the maw of the German battle fleet, who were now in hot pursuit as they chased the British northward. Their German plan to isolate and destroy part of the enemy battle squadron was nearly complete, except for one issue. As they chased the British, David Beatty was bringing them closer to a trap of his own, one far more dangerous than the Germans could imagine. Sixty miles ahead lay the dreadnoughts of the Royal Navy's Grand Battle Fleet, whose commander-in-chief, Sir John Jellicoe, was about to find himself front and center at the greatest naval battle of the century. As mentioned last day, we are going to continue where we left off by catching up with Jellicoe throughout the battlecruiser engagement. We'll start at 3.45pm with the commencement of the run to the south, and end off around 8 o'clock that evening, when darkness forces the two fleets to call off the battle. We have a ton of stuff to cover today, so let's not hold off any longer. When they left Scapa Flow on the evening of May the 30th, 1916, the 98 vessels of Admiral John Jellicoe's Grand Battle Fleet were not expecting anything out of the ordinary. The Admiralty's reports, indicating that the Germans were conducting operations near the mouth of the Skagerrak, had come as welcome news to the men who longed hope for the coming reckoning. But like the sailors of David Beatty's squadron, when Admiralty codebreakers informed them that the enemy dreadnoughts remained in anchor, the men aboard could only assume they were faced with another uneventful sweep. Despite their disappointed grumbling, the Grand Fleet continued to sail into the darkness, and by dawn of May the 31st, the situation remained much the same. On the bridge of Iron Duke, Jellicoe's 30,000-ton flagship, wireless channels gave him no hints of the German presence. Even at 2 p.m. that afternoon, Jellicoe again requested an update on the German fleet. The Admiralty answered the same as they had hours before. The 16 dreadnoughts of the High Seas Fleet remained safely in anchor. The Grand Fleet was deployed in cruising formation on the afternoon of May the 31st. The nucleus of the fleet, the 24 dreadnought battleships, were arrayed in six parallel columns, each four ships deep. Leading the column were the flagships of the individual battle squadrons. From port to starboard, the heads of the fleet were arranged as follows. On the port wing, King George V, under Vice Admiral Martin Jerome, Orion, under Rear Admiral Arthur Levison, at center, Jellicoe himself and Iron Duke. To his right, Dubton Sturdy, Victor of the Falklands, sailed in Benbow, with Colossus, under Rear Admiral Ernest Gaunt, and Marlborough on the starboard wing, under the watch of Jellicoe's second-in-command, Vice Admiral Cecil Burney. To an observer, the massive warship sailing in perfect unison was an impressive sight. It represented not only the entire might of the Grand Fleet, but decades of oceanic supremacy. The legacy built by Horatio Nelson a century earlier was reflected in every aspect of every vessel, some bearing the names of Trafalgar veterans, Thunderer, Conqueror, Neptune, and Collingwood. Its combined strength of firepower and weight of shell promised to deliver another Nelsonian victory, adding to the aura of invincibility enjoyed since that October afternoon back in 1805. But as the gargantuan forest inched closer to the Skagerrak, no one expected that the day, the long-anticipated showdown with the German Imperial fleet, was just six hours away. In order to understand what was happening with the Grand Fleet throughout the run to the south, 
We need to back up to when Galatea first spotted the German light cruisers at 2.20 that afternoon. When the sighting first arrived on Iron Duke, Jellicoe's formation remained 60 miles northward of Beatty's position, cruising at the economical speed of 15 knots. Initially, the sighting from Galatea meant little to Jellicoe. A skirmish between light cruisers was not enough to send the Grand Fleet barreling into action. And besides, Shears' reported absence, coupled with the presence of Beatty's battlecruisers and Evan Thomas's super dreadnoughts, the British squadrons had more than enough firepower to deal with any threat they might encounter. Over the next hour, 2.30 to 3.30 p.m., Jellicoe received only bits of information here and there. Reports of German warships trickled in, but nothing which suggested a serious action was imminent. Even 20 minutes later, when Beatty swung south to engage Franz Hipper at 3.50, there was little Jellicoe could do to help, as the speed of the battlecruisers exceeded beyond the top speed of his dreadnoughts. Instead, the commander-in-chief had another way of assisting Beatty. Positioned 25 miles ahead of the Grand Fleet was the 3rd Battle Squadron, commanded by Royal Navy poster child Rear Admiral Horace Hood. At the heart of the 3rd Battle Squadron were three thin-skinned battlecruisers of a previous generation, HMS Invincible, Inflexible, and Indomitable. These ships, launched in 1907, were the first generation of battlecruisers developed alongside HMS Dreadnought during the infancy of the pre-war naval race. Although they were aging warriors, each of these I-class vessels were established veterans. Invincible and Inflexible took part in the Battle of the Falklands, while Indomitable served in the hunt for Goman and Breslau throughout the Mediterranean. Despite their age, their presence under the superb leadership of Horace Hood was a welcome but unplanned complement to the Grand Fleet. Originally attached to David Beatty's formation, Hood's squadron was ordered to scap a flow for gunnery training, just weeks prior to the events at Jutland. Beatty only agreed to this on one condition, that in exchange for Hood, he would receive Evan Thomas's squadron of super dreadnoughts to cover the difference. While it may appear Jellicoe got the short end of the stick, trading four modern battleships in exchange for three aging battlecruisers, he actually won out the deal in the end. Not only did Hood's arrival immediately improve Jellicoe's command circle, but the addition of his battlecruisers gave the Grand Fleet an advantage it would not have had otherwise. Speed. Invincible, inflexible, and indomitable were all capable of 25 knots, and if dispatched in time, would be able to track down and support David Beatty before he slipped out of range. So just after 4 o'clock, Jellicoe did exactly that. The three battlecruisers, accompanied by two light cruisers and four destroyers, sped off in search of Beatty's formation. Little did Jellicoe know, it would be 90 minutes before Hood was heard from again. The next 35 minutes passed in obscurity, and as Hood's formation disappeared off the horizon, Jellicoe was left totally blind to the situation down south. The battlecruiser contest and destruction of Indefatigable and Queen Mary were lost on the commander-in-chief. No matter how many times he ordered updates on the situation, the answers he received were too vague to be of any value. Indeed, one of the things which would come to define the English experience throughout the Battle of Jutland was the inability of his subordinates to keep the fleet commander in the know. This breakdown in overall communication is the source of some controversy. Critics usually blame it on David Beatty, whose responsibility as battlecruiser commander included keeping the Grand Fleet informed at all times. What we know for certain is that Beatty never gave Jellicoe a clear indicator of where he was going, and his last wireless to Iron Duke simply read, quote, Am engaging enemy, unquote. 
it contained no indication of speed, direction, or bearing. Meaning, if the battle cruisers ran into trouble, there was little the Grand Fleet could do to help. While Beatty's error will come to influence how Jellicoe conducts the battle, the tactical reality throughout his engagement with Franz Hipper had made this task incredibly difficult. As we discussed last day, the run to the south was a communication nightmare. Wireless stations were knocked out early, and the smoke produced from funnels and main turrets reduced visibility several fold. The uneven fire distribution among the British ships, in the case of Evan Thomas missing two consecutive course reversals, are prime examples of how chaotic the situation had become. The fallout from all this will send a tremor up to the Grand Fleet, where Jellicoe will be forced to piece things together for himself making calculated estimates to the best of his knowledge. Luckily for the British, no one in the fleet was better suited for this task. Had things turned out differently, it would be easy to dismiss the inert details as grounds for historical nitpicking, but they become front and center of a larger picture, when just after 4.30, Commodore Goodenough, aboard the light cruiser Southampton, reports the sighting of a German high fleet. Initially, Jellicoe was, of course, skeptical. The Admiralty ensured, as recently as 2 o'clock, that she remained an anchor. So, was Southampton's report accurate? Was there a mix-up somewhere? Indeed there was, because just minutes after Southampton's report arrived, a second message buzzed through the wireless, this time from the Admiralty. The message from London read, listing the latitude and longitude, quote, Enemy battle fleet, course northwest, 15 knots, end quote. Jellicoe crunched the numbers. According to the Admiralty's report, Scheer had crossed 200 miles in just under 5 hours, and unless the Germans had warp drives and stealth technology, this was highly unlikely. While it's easy to make jokes about the Admiralty's blunder, their mistake represents a crucial turning point in the narrative. Not only had Jellicoe been left in the dark by his squadron commanders, but now the Admiralty had proven itself equally unreliable. From this moment forward, Jellicoe will be highly suspicious of any incoming messages, and begins to micromanage every aspect of the fleet, in some cases, only trusting what he can see for himself. At 4.51pm, Jellicoe radioed to London that fleet action was imminent. As the Commander-in-Chief's report made its way through the cables, reception boxes, and down the corridors of the Admiralty Building, it set off a ripple of excitement. Nearby hospitals were put on high alert, Civilian ships were ready to assist the wounded, and the coastal squadrons were ordered to steam at a moment's notice. The modern Trafalgar was about to begin. But then, for over an hour, nothing happened. The Grand Fleet continued forward, yet no updates on friendly or enemy ships arrived. David Beatty, Evan Thomas, and Horace Hood had been out of contact since 4 o'clock, and none of the scouting forces were reporting anything on the approaching enemy. It was during this hour, from about 5pm to just after 6, when the Grand Fleet was gripped with nervous anticipation. Jellicoe knew the Germans were out there somewhere, but their composition, speed, and location was anyone's guess. There was a tactical problem too. Jellicoe assumed that Beatty, if he was still afloat, would attempt to draw the enemy onto his dreadnoughts. But Jellicoe had still not heard from him, and had no idea which direction he would appear from. Of course, just to make things more fun, the North Sea was no longer cooperating. The day which began with clear skies was growing darker. The thin mist became thick and grey. As visibility became more challenging, Jellica was forced to draw in his scouting forces, limiting his scope even further. But don't worry, the lull in action will not last forever. As we saw last week, 
Jellicoe's warning of fleet action overlaps with the run to the north, when BD and Evan Thomas were racing to escape Shear's dreadnoughts. But as these events transpired, there was a third event which demands our attention. As Jellicoe waited in anticipation, and the battlecruisers zigzagged their way north, Admiral Horace Hood was fully occupied in tracking down BD's lost squadron, and it is the story of Horace Hood and the 3rd Battle Squadron we need to turn our attention to now. Horace Lambert Alexander Hood was the recent descendant of the longest and most established family in the history of the British Admiralty. Since their establishment in the Seven Years' War, the Hood family has produced some of the most influential leaders the Royal Navy has ever known. Horace Hood's great-great-grandfather was the mentor of Horatio Nelson. Open any book of the period, you're bound to find at least one famous Hood listed in the index. At just 45 years of age at the time of Jutland, Horace Hood was the ideal combination of Jellicoe's intellect and BD's hard-charging attitude. Youthful in appearance, he was a courageous officer who made a name for himself by overseeing the defense of the Belgian coast, which allowed the Belgian army to escape during the last days of the race to the sea. Hood was a guy who had everything going for him. A young family and promising career ahead, he was loved and respected by all he served with. Historian Richard Hugh describes him as Royal Navy at its most gallant, and it's not surprising that he is one of the few servicemen of the era actually smiling in their official portraits. At the time, it was the worst-kept secret that Hood was tapped to succeed Jellicoe as next commander of the fleet. When Hood sailed off in search of Beatty, his three battlecruisers, his flagship Invincible, Inflexible, and Indomitable, accompanied by two light cruisers and four destroyers, were on a south-by-southeast heading, making 25 knots, and by 5.30 that evening had come within 14 miles of Franz Hipper's battlecruisers. As Hood and Hipper closed distance, one of Hood's scout ships, the light cruiser Chester, caught sight of several objects moving in the dim haze. Unsure of their identification, Chester broke off to investigate. The ships in question were not Beatties, but part of Franz Hipper's scouting force. Four light cruisers, the Frankfurt and Elbing, you'll recall those from last day, and two more, Weissbatten and Palau. The German cruisers, commanded by Frederick Boddicker, correctly identified the approaching ship, opening fire once it entered gun range. Chester was hit 17 times in under 5 minutes, destroying electrical systems, gun placements, and bridge equipment, killing and wounding many of her crew. Miraculously, Chester's engines survived the beating, and her captain managed to steer his ship out of danger. Gunning his engines to the northeast, Chester begins racing towards Hood's battlecruisers, with Boddicker's force in hot pursuit. From the bridge of Invincible, Hood could see the flashes of gunfire pierce through the distant fog. Thinking the shots could be from Beatty's squadron, Hood orders his formation to steer towards the thunder. A few minutes later, Hood catches sight of Chester, the light cruiser zigzagging to avoid the torrent of enemy shells. While she was able to avoid taking more damage, the same cannot be said for the pursuing Germans. With their sights trained on the retreating ship, the German gunners did not notice the arrival of Hood's superior force, as three 20,000-ton battlecruisers bore down at top speed. Opening fire with 12-inch batteries, Hood's squadron ravaged the unsuspecting Germans. Weissbatten was reduced to a floating wreck, while Frankfurt and Palau each received several hits apiece. Only one of Boddicker's ships managed to escape unharmed, which in the process of fleeing, sent a distress call to Franz Hipper, who was just seven miles northwest of their position. Fully occupied with the unfolding run to the north, 
Franz Hipper could only respond by setting a destroyer detachment, with the hope that a mass torpedo attack would force Hood to turn away. This effort soon failed, as Hood's own support craft, led by the light cruiser Canterbury and four destroyers, Shark, Acasta, Ophelia, and Christopher, reached the German line and blunted the approaching enemy with small arms and torpedoes. This countercharge would cost Hood one destroyer. Shark was struck by two torpedoes midship, forcing her 30-man crew to abandon her in the frigid waters. Six hours later, only seven would be picked up. The time was 5.50 p.m. Meanwhile, John Jellicoe had no inkling that Hood was engaged. The Grand Fleet Master had no contact with the 3rd Squadron Admiral since 4 o'clock, nor had he heard from Beatty. That is until just after 6 p.m., when Beatty's flagship Lion emerged from the fog just off the starboard bow of Iron Duke. The battlecruiser, which had been in action for the past two hours, was heavily damaged. One of her turrets was missing from the earlier hit, and smoke poured from a large hole in her port hull. But true to Beatty's character, Lion continued to put up a fierce fight, firing her 13.5-inch batteries towards an enemy unseen by anyone in Jellicoe's van. The sight of Beatty's formation came as a welcome relief to Jellicoe, but it also caused him great worry, since he still did not know the location of the German fleet. While Beatty was racing north, Jellicoe had been doing his math. Piecing together the bits of information as best he could, he had come up with an approximate location of Beatty's ships, and based on that finding, drew an estimated location of the high seas fleet. The problem, Jellicoe now realized, was Beatty had emerged 20 minutes earlier than expected, meaning the 16 enemy dreadnoughts could follow at any moment. So, okay, this may sound all well and good. Jellicoe has a stronger fleet, so he should be ready to give Sheer a nasty surprise. The problem, however, was that the Grand Fleet had yet to deploy in battle formation. Since they left Scapaflow, Jellicoe kept his fleet in six parallel columns. This was the standard cruising formation for the Grand Fleet, as it offered the best protection against U-boat and torpedo attack. But it was impossible to fight this way, because firepower was restricted to only the leading ships. If he was to engage Sheer, Jellicoe had to get his fleet battle ready before he arrived. But the only way to do that was to know the exact location and heading of the enemy fleet. Deploy to the wrong side, and the enemy could cross your T. Deploy too late, and you might get caught in mid-transition, which was just as bad. To put it simply, battle formation required the six columns of dreadnoughts to become one continuous line, allowing the full weight of their broadsides to be brought against a single target. It had been practiced time and time again in peace maneuvers, and if you were part of the Grand Fleet, you knew the exact location of your ship, whether it was ordered port or starboard, aka left or right for all us non-seasoned land crawlers. But it wasn't an organizational issue which worried Jellicoe. It was timing. To get the 24 battleships in line, it would take 20 minutes at the very least. 20 minutes Jellicoe might no longer have because of Beatty's sudden reappearance. It was now or never. Since Lion had lost wireless earlier in the battle, Jellicoe uses his searchlight to ask the location of the German fleet, but Beatty could not answer with any certainty. Let's not forget, he had left the high seas fleet behind in their run to the north, and somewhere to the south was Evan Thomas's party still pounding away. Men aboard, Lion and Iron Duke, could hear the Super Dreadnought's 15-inch batteries bellowing in the fog. Beatty understood the seriousness of the situation, and before replying, scanned the horizon for any sign of the enemy. 
By pure chance, at 6.14pm, Beatty caught a glimpse of Shear's vanguard coming through the mist. He flashes Jellicoe the reply, quote, Enemy battle fleet bearing south-southwest. Nearest ship is seven miles, end quote. While this was not the information Jellicoe was looking for, it was something to go off. He still did not know the speed or course of Shear's fleet, but knew that his adversary was close. The gears and 56-year-old John Jellicoe were spinning in overdrive, and although he faced the most crucial decision of his career, he showed no signs of worry. If he was to destroy Shear, he would need to get the Grand Fleet into battle formation. But which way? East to port, or west to starboard? The wrong decision could mean the worst disaster in Royal Navy history. The correct one, and the German fleet, nemesis of the British Empire, would be delivered. In 60 seconds, Jellicoe ordered battle deployment to port, which required each squadron of four dreadnoughts to fall in behind the port column. So if you are to visualize six horizontal lines numbered 1 through 6 from top to bottom, line number 1 represents the port wing. In terms of Jellicoe's fleet, the port column consisted of the 2nd Battle Squadron, headed by King George V. Under portside deployment, King George V would thus become first ship of the line, with the leading flagships of the other columns falling in behind. Jellicoe's flagship, Iron Duke, would then be the ninth ship to join the van. If you are having trouble visualizing, I've made a quick diagram and put it up on the website. After giving the order, Jellicoe's flag captain blows two short sirens indicating battle deployment to port. The dreadnoughts of the line, colossal beasts of steel and coal, each repeat the call in succession, the harrowing echo rippling across the water as the Grand Fleet begins to uncoil. This is when the Battle of Jutland enters its most complex and convoluted stage. As the dreadnoughts deployed, Many of the smaller support craft were required to take up new positions further ahead, resulting in some coming into contact with German scouts. Now we won't even try to cover all these moving parts in detail, but there is one encounter which deserves special mention, because it will serve to bring the high seas and Grand Fleet together. The formation in question was the 1st Light Cruiser Squadron, commanded by Rear Admiral Robert Arthbonaut. During the Grand Fleet deployment, Arthbonaut's four obsolete armored cruisers, Defense, Warrior, Black Prince, and Duke of Edinburgh, each about 14,000 tons, were five miles ahead of Jellicoe's formation, nearing the spot of Hood's earlier engagement with Boddicker. As they steam forward, Arthbonaut spots the wreckage of the Weissbatten, the light cruiser disabled by Invincible. Weissbatten was still afloat, but heavily damaged, essentially little more than an immobile target. But Arthbonaut, for reasons still unclear, felt it necessary to take his squadron and deliver the coup de grace. Arthbonaut was a man with an axe to grind, a real fire-eater who always felt the need to challenge and impress those around him. Earlier in the war, he had written his name into the Admiralty shit list by refusing to fire on a German cruiser spotted off the English coast. He defended this action by arguing he did not have the proper authorization from the higher-ups, and thus let it slip away. Arthbonaut was never allowed to forget that decision, and was determined not to let this current opportunity go to waste. Raising steam to 23 knots, he led his squadron towards the crippled ship. A tactically sound leader would have had a better grasp of the situation around him. With the Grand Fleet deploying in the backdrop, Beatty's surviving battlecruisers, Lion, Princess Royal, New Zealand, and Tiger, were bringing themselves across the bow of the Grand Fleet in a C-shaped arc preventing Franz Hipper from glimpsing it mid-deployment. 
The result of Arthbanot's boneheaded move had put his cruisers directly between Beatty's force, arcing northeast, and the fast-approaching Franz Hipper. The result, as expected, was an absolute rout. The armored cruisers were closer to the German line than the British, and because of this, Beatty was unable to fire without risk of hitting his fellow countrymen. When Hipper's formation came through the mist, only then did Arthbanot realize his mistake. The 11- and 12-inch guns opened fire at 7,000 yards, point-blank range by naval standards. Defense was riddled with 900-pound projectiles, and in an all-encompassing explosion, Arthbanot and 900 men, all hands on board, were instantly killed. The remaining ships, Black Prince and Duke of Ettenberg, managed to duck away, while Warrior, the closest to defense, was heavily damaged. She would sink later that afternoon, drowning 70 of her crew. Meanwhile, Horace Hood had completed his task by locating Beatty's formation at 6.16pm. Hoisting flags to his squadron, Invincible, Inflexible, and Indomitable raced forward, belching black smoke as they cut through the waves. Horace Hood was about to complete his dramatic ride and take his rightful place in the family pantheon. Hipper's battlecruisers, Lutzow, Durflinger, and Seidlitz, were firing on Beatty's squadron as they arced coming up on a northeast heading. Pushing his old battlecruisers as hard as he could, Hood led his squadron through the shell-torn sea and cut a path directly across the bow of the Grand Fleet, and with the skill and precision synonymous with his name, brought his battlecruisers to fall in ahead of Lion, forming Beatty's vanguard. His 12-inch guns swung towards Hipper's line and opened fire. At this point, you can't help but feel a little sorry for Admiral Franz Hipper. Two and a half hours earlier, he had come up against six British battlecruisers, sinking two without loss to his own. Now, despite surviving the earlier duels and having lured his opponents onto Sheer, he found himself again staring down the barrel of a numerically superior enemy. Surely, this was the arithmetic of the insane, as he was again faced with seven enemy ships against his five now-exhausted squadron. The weight of the bombardment unleashed by Hood's squadron caused everyone to pause. Within eight minutes, Invincible alone fired 50 shells, four striking Lutzow and three landing on Durflinger. Observers from both sides were impressed with the superb shooting. On board Invincible, Hood called to his gunnery chief, saying, quote, Your fire is very good. Keep it up as quickly as you can. Every shot is telling. End quote. These were the last recorded words of Admiral Hood. Because at 6.33 p.m., Invincible entered a clear patch and for the first time, the German gunners could see their assailant, and it was Durflinger which scored the killing blow. Three heavy salvos crashed into Invincible's thinly protected midsection. Like Indefatigable and Queen Mary two hours earlier, the following explosion was all-consuming. Witnessing the awful spectacle, the German gunners saw sparks ripple all along her starboard hull, and then the 20,000-ton battlecruiser was engulfed in a fiery burst. Out of 1,031 officers and crew, there would be only six survivors. Adding to the already macabre sight, the force of the explosion had torn Invincible in two halves, which had embedded themselves in the shallow bank, bow and stern, silhouetted in clear view. Horace Hood was the most significant casualty the Royal Navy sustained that afternoon, and the news of his death was met with mourning and accolades across England. But what adds to the aura of his sacrifice was the impact it had on the overall battle. By swinging his battlecruisers to the head of Beatty's formation, he had achieved three crucial things, 
all of which thwarted any hope the Germans had for victory. The first was that his intervention had taken the pressure away from Beatty, giving his colleague enough time to rejoin the main fleet. Secondly, it allowed the first columns of dreadnoughts to complete their deployment. Since Jellicoe had ordered the deployment late, the dreadnoughts of the British and German fleets had made visual contact at 6.15pm, with King George V at the head of the British line opening fire on the German battleship Kuning. But with Hood's sudden appearance overlapping this, it had forced Jellicoe to reduce the Grand Fleet's speed to just 14 knots, allowing the eight remaining dreadnoughts to join the battle line, when, once in position, unleashed their guns against the fast-approaching Germans. Even as the vanguards of the two fleets made contact, Reinhard Scheer remained in ignorance of what awaited him. Since the commencement of the run to the north, at 4.50, the German admiral was fully convinced he had the English on the run. The High Seas Fleet had been following Hipper northward for over an hour, and reports which came through his flagship indicated the enemy was being battered. But as Jellicoe was left in the dark for most of the opening phase, Scheer was about to fall victim to an erroneous report sent from Franz Hipper, and it was Admiral Hood who played the jester. When sighting the approaching battlecruisers, Hipper had incorrectly identified them as battleships, and Scheer eager to deal a significant blow to the Grand Fleet, ordered his dreadnoughts towards his unseen force. This had put the High Seas Fleet on a northern course, just as the Grand Fleet was unfolding along the eastern horizon. But a greater danger awaited him, because Scheer had yet to deploy his fleet in the proper fashion. As they had since leaving port, the High Seas Fleet remained packed into a single line, which ran from north to south. With the Grand Fleet deploying to the east, Scheer was allowing Jellicoe to cross his T. Sixteen German dreadnoughts were thus sailing straight into the massed guns of 24 Grand Fleet battleships, the largest concentration of naval power the world had ever seen. As the battle fleets of the world's mightiest navies came together, a torrent of gunfire was unleashed. It began at 6.15pm, when King George V, first of the line, opened fire. As the other ships slid into position, each added the weight of their immense guns to the deafening salvos. Never in the history of naval warfare was there such a mismatch in fire superiority. Of the 24 ships of Jellicoe's line, 9 were equipped with 12-inch batteries, 11 with 13.5-inch, 1 with 14, and 2 with 15-inch broadsides. By comparison, the German fleet had no guns exceeding 12-inch caliber. The last dreadnought to fall in line, HMS Agincourt, was equipped with more heavy turrets than any battleship in the world. Making this advantage all the more decisive was the welcome arrival of Evan Thomas's Super Dreadnoughts, which joined the tail end of Jellicoe's rearguard, adding their own 15-inch turrets to the Wall of Steel. When the vanguard of the High Seas Fleet, led by Germany's newest and most powerful Dreadnoughts, broke through the haze, the sight of the battle-ready Grand Fleet came as an absolute shock. They were steaming straight into a near-endless column of grey ships, broken only by orange muzzle flashes and thunderclap. Heavy shells began to surround the German dreadnoughts, sending immense geysers hundreds of feet in the air. Reinhard Scheer, whose flagship was 13th in line, had no idea he had sailed straight into the dragon's teeth. Panicked reports from the lead ships, warning of the firestorm being unleashed, resulted in no clearer picture being formed. Further complicating the problem was the fact that the leading dreadnoughts were beginning to angle themselves eastward in an effort to extract themselves from the British shelling. 
First, it was Franz Hipper's squadron which led the change, followed closely by the vanguard dreadnoughts. Admiral Scheer had not ordered this course alteration, and for several minutes lost total control of the battle. When Reinhard Scheer took over the Imperial Navy, he did so on a pretense, that he would never risk an open battle with the Grand Fleet. As you'll recall from episode 37, this was the only way of persuading Kaiser Wilhelm to sign off on the resumption of regular sorties. Writing after the war, Scheer acknowledged this in his memoirs, writing, quote, Our conduct of the naval war was rather aimed at preventing a decisive battle being forced upon us, end quote. Well, at 6.20 p.m. on May the 31st, 1916, Reinhard Scheer had sailed the entire high seas fleet into the decisive battle he promised to avoid. The British battle line was adding more weight of shell with each passing minute. Although none of his dreadnoughts were sunk, several were hit, causing significant casualties and structural damage. As heavy shells rained all around his formation, Scheer only had two things on his mind. One, how he got himself into the situation and two, how to get himself the hell out. Long after the war ended, Scheer attempted to answer the first question by making it seem like he planned the encounter all along. He writes with great hypocrisy, quote, There was never any question of our line veering round to avoid an encounter. The resolve to do battle with the enemy stood firm from the very first, end quote. This explanation, of course, is a bold-faced lie. Scheer's line was bending because the firepower of the Grand Fleet was too overwhelming. Franz Hipper and the other squadron commanders were not interested in being sent to the bottom of the sea, so their only option was to get themselves beyond the reach of the dreadnoughts as quickly as they could. Of course, if we are to criticize the German C&C for recklessly endangering his fleet, we should also commend him for knowing how to save its hide. The Grand Fleet had finished its deployment by 6.33 that evening and with a combined total of 264 heavy guns firing in near unison, the clock was ticking for the German armada to make its escape. For this, Scheer had an ace up his sleeve. Just minutes after the Grand Fleet completed its deployment, at 6.36pm, Reinhard Scheer sends an order to his squadrons, issuing that every vessel conduct an about turn 180 degrees to starboard. Like the gears of some great machine, Every vessel in the German line, from dreadnought to destroyer, began to turn simultaneously. Unlike the other fleet maneuvers we've seen so far, this was not done in the typical follow-the-leader fashion. It was a planned emergency maneuver, practiced numerous times in the event the high fleet needed to break from a superior force. Its proper name in German I won't even try to pronounce, but it called for every ship in the armada to reverse course on a dime with no consideration to order. It was pulled off with such skill and discipline that within four minutes of Scheer giving the order, over 90 warships which were heading north were now steaming in the opposite direction. The speed in which the Germans conducted their withdrawal had caught the Grand Fleet by surprise. Gun crews had barely enough time to reload their turret before the enemy disappeared behind the smokescreen. For the British, this was equally perplexing as it was astonishing. No one who received Royal Navy training even those who had gone on to become officers had seen anything like it. Average visibility was down to just 12,000 yards, and a light breeze coming from west-southwest meant the enemy's funnel smoke was drifting towards the view of fire. In some cases, the British dreadnoughts only caught fleeting glimpses of their target. As was the case with Iron Duke, Jellicoe only saw three or four battleships throughout the 20-minute ordeal. 
Making a difficult situation all the more frustrating was the fact that none of the other captains could report a sighting of the enemy. When he pressed his admirals for information, Jellicoe received negative report after negative report. So for the next 20 minutes, Jellicoe could only guess at where the Germans were headed. At first, he thought their disappearance was due to shifting visibility, and initially held course. Exercising strong caution, Jellicoe had the Grand Fleet slowly poke and prod its way through the fog. Since none of his admirals could report a location of an enemy ship, he was not about to send his fleet in hot pursuit. We'll get more into this in the next episode, when we talk about the battle in retrospect, but one of John Jellicoe's defining characteristics was his concern of underwater weapons, namely torpedoes, mines, and submarines. This fear was nothing new. As we saw a couple of weeks ago when we first talked about him, he was concerned that the weak plating on British warships would give the Germans a decisive advantage, especially if they decided to equip the high fleet with torpedo capabilities. In the two years prior to Jutland, there had always been an active rumor mill, which hinted the Germans were doing just that. While these rumors were never confirmed as true, they were also never confirmed as false, and as a result, Jellicoe always had a contingency plan ready in case the Grand Fleet was threatened by these submerged menaces. Jellicoe's concern, coupled with the fact that the German fleet suddenly disappeared like a mirage, forced him to reel in the Grand Fleet. A freight shear had peppered the water with mines, Jellicoe maneuvered his ships around his adversary's last known location, careful not to cross over the same waters the Germans once occupied. Jellicoe called this the enemy's invited direction. This game of hide-and-seek continued for 20 minutes, when at 6.55pm, 15 minutes after Shear gave the order to withdraw, one of the Grand Fleet dreadnoughts, the HMS Marlborough, suffered an explosion on her starboard side. The 30,000-ton dreadnought was struck by an errant torpedo, fired by a German destroyer in an effort to cover the main fleet's escape. Although the cause of the explosion wouldn't be identified until after the battle, it seemed to confirm Jellicoe's suspicion that the Germans had indeed mined the waters, and were hoping to draw the Grand Fleet into another trap. Meanwhile, Scheer and the High Seas Fleet were in full flight. The German admiral no longer shared illusions over the enemy's strength. He had left the British in the rear mirror, so that was a welcome relief, but he was also 160 miles from home, with the entire British fleet out looking for him. Because of the withdrawal, the High Seas Fleet were now heading southwest, taking them further from Wilhelmshaven with each passing minute. Like his British counterparts, Scheer could not tell where his enemy was, but he was able to make an estimated guess. Since they were not directly behind him, Scheer deduced that Jellicoe had altered course somewhere, but which direction? There were three possible options. The first option was that Jellicoe was in pursuit from the north, but since none of his scouts indicated their presence, it was unlikely, so we can eliminate that one. The second was that Jellicoe had altered course to the west, that is, in the direction of the home islands. This was also outside the realm of possibility, and of course it would make little tactical sense to do that. That left the third option, which suggested Jellicoe had held the Grand Fleet on an eastern heading, and would continue to do so until he was convinced the Germans were no longer in the vicinity. When that happened, the Grand Fleet would begin to head south, meaning the British would eventually be in a position to cut off Scheer's escape, either into the Baltic via the Skagerrak, or the most direct path to the Heligoland in Wilhelmshaven. The tactical conundrum was daunting. Scheer was indeed lucky to have escaped, but was now facing the threat of being cut off by the mightiest navy the world had ever known. 
Compounding the problem was how Scheer planned to extract his fleet without catastrophic losses. The time was now 6.55pm, and the sun was beginning to set. Scheer could only hope to make his escape under the cover of darkness, but sundown was not forecasted for another couple of hours. In the meantime, he would need to find a way to evade the British while developing an extraction plan which would ensure the survival of the dreadnought fleet. What was his conclusion, you ask? Well, it was decided his best option was to order another 180-degree turn and charge the high seas fleet straight back into the snare it had just escaped. To this day, historians continue to debate what was going through Scheer's mind when he made this call. In his memoir, Scheer justified it solely as a matter of pride. If he avoided battle, then his withdrawal would forever be classified as a retreat. But if he gave the British just a little taste, he could say it was all part of a plan to confuse the enemy. Scheer was impressed with how well the first about turn was conducted, which convinced him that if need be, a second about turn would, and I quote directly, surprise the enemy to upset his plans for the rest of the day, and if the blow fell heavily, facilitate the breaking loose at night, end quote. In other words, Scheer was banking on the Grand Fleet being caught unaware by this second advance, sending Jellicoe's force into disarray. What makes this second reversal all the more curious is that Scheer did it with Franz Hipper's badly mauled battlecruisers forming the Vanguard. This decision has been widely criticized since it effectively condemned the exhausted ships to the gallows. Reginald Bacon, Jellicoe's official biographer, describes it as an incomprehensible maneuver. Certainly at first glance, it seems like a dim-witted move, but it was the result of circumstance rather than a cold-hearted calculation. Since the run to the north, Hipper's formation had always been the most northern, but when Scheer ordered the earlier withdrawal, they were now forming the rear guard, trailing behind the dreadnoughts. Now, at 7 o'clock that evening, they were called on to complete one more task. By this point, Franz Hipper's squadron was in no condition to fight. Heavy damage sustained by the Grand Fleet had ground his squadron to a halt. Conditions on his flagship Lutzau had forced Hipper to move his staff aboard Moltke, the oldest ship in the squadron. The other vessels, Durflinger, Seidlitz, and von der Tann, were all heavily damaged. Wireless stations were destroyed, and plating had been torn open. Durflinger and Seidlitz had taken on several thousand tons of water and were just barely able to remain afloat. All of this saying nothing of the human casualties. Medical stations were a grisly scene. We'll never know if Scheer purposely planned for this to happen. But what is clear is that his intention to catch the enemy by surprise was never going to work with this arrangement. Nevertheless, the High Seas Fleet, with Hipper's battlecruisers in the lead, reversed course once again, now heading northeast, a blind charge against an enemy it had no hope of defeating. The time was 7.15pm. In his book, Castles of Steel, Robert Massey describes this second attack as the most useless naval assault in the Great War and it would be difficult for anyone to argue otherwise. German histories suggest it was done out of pure desperation, but it achieved little, and if anything, left their armada more damaged than it had been before. In short, the Grand Fleet ravaged their opponents, all because Scheer miscalculated its position. Instead of heading east to cut off his escape, Jellicoe had kept his formation close to the same area. Reinhard Scheer was thus allowing the British to cross his T for a second time, except now the Grand Fleet was fully deployed and waiting. 
As they emerged from the haze, the Germans were met with salvo after salvo. The concentrated firepower of the Grand Fleet erupted into an endless wave of thunder. Gunfire could be heard for miles in each direction, and the shrieks of overhead projectiles added to the terrifying symphony. The Grand Fleet dreadnoughts were firing three salvos a minute and taking a terrible toll. Visibility for the Germans was non-existent. No gunner could see his assailants through the smoke, haze, and towering waterspouts. The German fleet was in total disarray, slowly being pummeled into submission. As expected, it was the battlecruisers which bore the brunt. Seidlitz, Durflinger, and Moltke were swept by heavy fire as they ran the gauntlet, only spared when the larger dreadnoughts presented a better target for British gunners. To rectify his mistake and relieve the pressure on his dreadnoughts, Scheer orders his battlecruisers to charge the enemy line. His order, issued to Durflinger at 7.20, did not sugarcoat the language. Quote, At the enemy, stake all. Ships are to attack without regard for consequence. End quote. The dramatic death ride was carried out with no hesitation. Lutzow, Durflinger, Seidlitz, von der Tann, and Moltke hurled themselves against the English line and the weight of shelling they received effectively ended their day of battle. Durflinger was struck by two 15-inch shells, one impacting her rear turret, incinerating over 130 men. Seidlitz and von der Tann were also heavily damaged, while Lutzow could only limp away in defeat. Despite this kamikaze charge, the battlecruisers were saved in timely fashion. Twenty torpedo boats, which were sent in alongside the battlecruisers, had closed within 8,000 yards and launched their payloads. From the bridge of Iron Duke, Jellicoe could see the tracks of 31 torpedoes creeping towards the line. With torpedoes fast approaching, Jellicoe instinctively ordered the Grand Fleet to turn ever slightly, just enough to put greater distance between torpedo and target. As expected from their range, most of the torpedoes ran out of fuel before reaching the British line. In fact, only a handful made the crossing but caused no serious damage. Yet, they had served their purpose. In the backdrop of the battlecruiser death ride and torpedo attack, Scheer had ordered another about turn, his third and final of the day, rotating the high seas fleet back southwest. With the British in evasive mode, Scheer, Hipper, and the torpedo squadrons were again able to make their escape into the horizon. Scheer's heroic charge lasted just 20 minutes. The time was 7.33 p.m. At the time, no one could have predicted that this was the final fleet action of the First World War. Just after the third German about turn, the two mighty navies were heading in opposite directions, Scheer southwest and Jellicoe southeast. While the second assault against the British line succeeded in giving the Germans a little more room to maneuver, it did nothing to change the overall picture. Hipper's battlecruisers had taken all they could and for all intents and purposes were little more than floating skeletons. Despite destroying three enemy warships of equal value, the surviving vessels would spend the next six hours limping their way through the darkness. For the next 30 minutes, the North Sea fell quiet as the two fleets continued to search for the other. By now, nightfall was fast approaching, and there was a real emphasis, particularly from the British, to find the enemy before darkness fell. The loudest voice in support came from David Beatty. Beatty, whose squadron was recently reinforced by Hood's surviving battlecruisers, inflexible and indomitable, found himself six miles southwest of the British line. He, like Jellicoe, had no idea where the Germans were, 
but was nevertheless eager to find them before the sun set. After receiving Jellicoe's permission to scout ahead at 7.45, Beatty took his six battlecruisers and steamed forward, hoping to find any clue of the enemy whereabouts. A half hour later, at 8.12 that evening, Beatty stumbled into the remnants of Hipper's formation, which suddenly appeared only 10,000 yards away. The British opened fire, adding additional injury to the already mauled formation. Seidlitz was hit for the 19th time since the run to the south, but still refused to sink. Luckily for the German fleet, darkness was fast approaching, and Beatty was forced to call off the attack as the sun dipped lower. So we're going to leave it there for this week, but before we end off, it's important to note one more thing. As the sun began to set, the opposing fleets occupied two very different mindsets. The Germans were in an appalling position. Cut off from home base with a superior enemy blocking its only path meant that if they were going to survive the night, it would require a new way of thinking mixed with a little bit of luck. Every move would be one born out of desperation, because as the sky grew darker, Reinhard Scheer was forced to concede that the noose was drawing ever tighter, and the only way to escape was by slashing straight through it. The British, on the other hand, could be pleased with their position. Although the Germans had avoided them twice, the men fully anticipated a renewal of battle by daybreak. They knew their adversary was growing desperate, and with the Grand Fleet blocking its only escape, there was only one way for the enemy to go. By 9pm, darkness had arrived, but sunset was only five hours away, and when it came, the Grand Fleet would be ready to finish the job. Next week, we're going to look at the events which transpired throughout the night until dawn of June the 1st. While there were no major fleet actions, the Battle of Jutland still has a lot more drama to offer. During the night, a chaotic and violent episode will unfold, as Reinhard Scheer, desperate to escape the clutches of the British, will resort to ramming his fleet through Jellicoe's destroyer flotillas. In the chaos which followed, no one could tell friend from foe, and the silence of night would only be broken by the flashes of searchlights and the yellow crackles of gunfire. The German crews, better trained in the art of night fighting, would wreak havoc as they barged their way for home. It would be a night of horror for the British destroyer crews, who time and time again found themselves staring down the barrels of 20,000 ton enemy dreadnoughts. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a complete list of sources along with contact info if you wish to get in touch with me. Getting your thoughts and opinions is incredibly valuable and will help improve the show going forward. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can make a one-time donation through the homepage or give us a five-star review on iTunes, which will help boost us in the rankings and attract any new listeners out there. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you again shortly.